This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go! Hello, and welcome to the FinTech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, and this is a very special edition of the FinTech Takes podcast. I don't know if most of the folks who listen know this, but I have actually spent the majority of my career working with my dad. And it's a little unusual, but when I was uh, 16, I actually got an internship at a company called Zoot Enterprises, which is a fintech company based in Bozeman, Montana. And one of the reasons I got that internship was that I was working with my dad, who was the vice president of product development at Zoot. So we worked together there for 12 years. After we left, we worked together again for about five years at FICO. And it's truly not an exaggeration to say that everything I know about fintech, I learned from him. So I thought it would be fun, particularly as we head into the holidays, to record the first ever podcast that I've ever done with my dad, Tom Johnson. So, Dad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate it. You know, I have to say that as unusual as it's been great, you know, one of the best things that I've done in my life is have my son work beside me for all those years. Oh, well, that's very nice. There's no need to be so nice to me on my podcast, but I I do. (laughs) Well, I won't later when you come up with a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. I guess maybe as a starting place before we get into the the fun game that I was hoping to play today, could you give just a slightly more detailed description of your background for everyone besides the one I just gave? Sure. So I have worked for about 30 years in fintech in different capacities, or at least the financial services industry. You know, started out years and years ago at a credit union that was very small, right, um, right. but uh, learned lending from them. But then I, I actually, you know, the Zoot experience that Alex and I had was pretty interesting because it was Zoot at the time was kind of the one of the original fintech companies in the industry. Right. And so any of the banks that were out there were they wanted to do something crazy. They came to Zoot. Mm-hmm. So um, we got to do a lot of unique, interesting projects that, you know, I, I look back on now and think today that would never happen. Right. You know, right. Zoot technology and you know, our ability to be influential in designing all kinds of systems from dealer track to lending tree to systems for Wells Fargo and um, American Express and everybody else in the industry that were doing unusual things, doing pre-screen of one back in the day before that was a big deal. So anyway, that that kind of got me kicked off on doing uh, kind of a, a marriage of uh, technology and business. And that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, Zoot Enterprises for what was it like 15 years? Close to, 17, close to 20, right? Yeah, 17 years there. And then five at FICO. And then spent a couple of years at Amount doing the actual startup thing. And now I'm uh, doing some consulting actually with a bank and building a lending platform for them. Got it. Okay. So um I think the best way to summarize that would be kind of a mixture of product development, business development, marketing, go-to-market strategy, but really at all times, for the most part, kind of revolving around fintech infrastructure. Yeah, fintech infrastructure has been a big deal. You know, I mean, the um, way back when we went to work at Zoot, you know, Zoot did a lot of very innovative things in fintech infrastructure that you know, a lot of this stuff is really almost unmatched today, right? It was a great place to learn that. 
Right, right. Absolutely. And the reason I mentioned that is that the game I want to play for this podcast is one that I'm calling, you're just going to have to trust me. And so, you know, one of the things that I think I've learned from you is that there are certain areas where you can kind of push on what's possible and innovate. You have, I think, a number of patents that you have your name on. I do. So there are certainly areas where you can innovate, but there are also things that I think as you work longer in a particular industry, you just kind of find that there are things that are true just because they're true, right? And there's no particular reason why they're true. They're just sort of fundamental laws of the universe that you find yourself in. And I think a lot of those can be sort of sources of frustration for people who work in those industries, particularly people who are new to those industries. And so I thought it would be fun to recap a few of those sort of immutable laws of the fintech infrastructure universe that you and I have come across over the last almost 20 years. So I'm hoping that what we can do is take turns sort of sharing little bits of advice that fall into the category of, you're just going to have to trust me as it relates to fintech infrastructure, things that you've learned along the way, and that if you were advising someone who was building in the world of fintech infrastructure, this would be a piece of advice that I would give you. So as uh, the old saying goes, age before beauty. So I'll let you (laughs) go first. What piece of advice first would you like to share? You know, it's funny that you say that. The one thing I would add to what you just said is that you're just going to have to trust me is that, you know, a lot of these things go against conventional logic. And when you're working in the industry, you will find circumstances where everybody is pushing in one direction and everybody says, oh, yeah, we'll do that, you know, blah, blah, blah. That'll be easy, whatever. And we're going to go through and I'm going to give you some of these. You're going to give me some of them where you know, that's not true. <laughs> right. You know? Right. And, and, you know, all, you know, like all conventional logic would say it, it, you can do it. It just never happens. Right. Okay. So give us your first one. Okay. So my first one is, I love this one, right. Which is when you're building out a product and I've, I've done this a bunch of different times, right. Everybody will say, oh yeah, we just need to get to market. We'll go back and fix that later. Right. Mm. The reality is you never go back and fix those things. Right. And, you know, I've seen code that's 20 years old that's in these systems that I was there when it was written and we were saying, we're going to replace that in three months and it's still in production and still working, right? And unless it's a security vulnerability or an audit finding or something else, you just don't go back, right? And those things just create a ton of technical debt and really handicap the product you're trying to deliver. And it's like, it's so easy to say, oh God, we said we're going to be out in April. We've got to make that date. We're just going to do it this way and we'll go back and fix it. I'm telling you right now, make it July, do it right. And you'll have a product that you'll be proud of, that'll make money for you. And that'll be in the industry in 20 years. If you don't, you're going to be out of business very quickly. Interesting. So, I mean... Let me push back on that a little bit. And I don't disagree with what you said at all, but on the you'll be out of business really quickly. I mean, I think if it's a security vulnerability or it's some massive like sort of like hole in the code, that can cause massive problems. And the reality is if you discover those, you'll probably go back and fix it. But I think what I hear you saying is there's a whole bunch of sort of compromises that you make or that you think about making when you're building a product, right? 
And those compromises, it's really a question of which of these can we live with and which of these can we just sort of like, no, even that's going to take us a little bit while longer to go back and fix this or to do it a different way. This is the right way to build those. So I guess using your experience building these products as sort of a guide, like how do you tell the difference between those two? Because that's the thing I, I struggle with a lot in the world of fintech infrastructure is there is a need to get to market quickly. And particularly if you're a, a VC-backed company that has a runway, you can't spend two years designing the perfect product before you get it into market. So how do you distinguish between things that are not ideal but won't kill you versus things that may actually end up being kind of a deal breaker? Because I think your core point, you don't go back and fix things that are less than ideal unless you absolutely have to is definitely true. Well, let me, yeah, I think that's a good pushback. And I think that there is definitely a line there and and I'll give you an example of it. Okay. Right. So for me, when you're building fintech infrastructure, you want to build a set of services that are configurable. Yeah. Right. And it's like, you don't want the service to change between different implementations, different clients that you roll this out to. You want to just have a very light level of configuration on the top, hopefully something that's actually business user configurable, yep. right? And yep. I, you know, I actually have a couple of patents in this area. And if you do that, then it's easy for you to get clients up onto the system. Yep. It's easy for you to give them exactly what they want, right? If you've generalized the service properly and you have that configuration layer, you can get them into production quickly. You can allow them to adapt over time. You can keep them going and you don't have to hire everybody in town in order to be able to bring the next client up and to be able to manage that client. That's one where, you know, it's really tempting to go in and just say, hey, we know the best way to do this. We're going to do it this way and everybody will just use this. And if anybody needs something different, we'll just go back in and just change the code. Very bad idea, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's one. And I think it kind of points to a really good thing, which is, you know, you want to make your life easier going forward. You want to make your client's life easier. You want to give them more flexibility going forward. You want to let them be able to adapt with the market. If you build your product in that way, then you're going to be a, a lot more likely to succeed. If you don't do it that way, then it's like you're going to be hiring armies. As you grow your clientele, you're going to just be hiring an army of engineers that are going in and then everybody's running on a slightly different version. And it's one of those things where it's like, that's okay at three clients. It's okay at five. It may be okay at 10, but at some point, mm. you, you know, you get to 30, 40, a hundred clients, it breaks, it falls apart. And I've seen it time and time again, where somebody has to go in and basically re-engineer their entire product because it's just collapsed. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen that too, where it's like, yeah, we're going to be, you see, I think the term people use a lot is like replatforming, right? right. Like we're going to replatform. And it's sort of code for, we made a bunch of bad decisions that individually were probably not the worst decisions in the world, right? It's like, I mean, to use, to put it in a personal context, like the way my wife and I talk about it at home is like, past Alex versus future Alex, right? <laughs> and so it's like, when I have a, a thing where it's like, oh yeah, got up in the morning and all the dishes that are dirty are all in the sink and all over the kitchen because past Alex didn't clean those up. Thanks past Alex. <laughs> and now I have to fix all those problems. 
I, I mean, everyone goes through that in a sort of general personalized sense. But I think the the point you made at the end is a really critical one, which is software compounds, right? And so it's not one small problem that the past you created that then lives in isolation that you can always go back and fix the next day. It's that happened. And then we had to move on and do the next release and do a bunch of stuff. And some of those releases were contingent on what we already built before. And now the thing we built for one client is being used in a way that we didn't anticipate by another client. And so it just sort of spider webs and gets away from you to the point where when a company announces they're replatforming or they're in the middle of this very exciting whatever, it's really just code for we made a bunch of bad decisions and the consequences of those decisions have compounded over and over to the point where even though we don't want to spend $3 million in the next two years replatforming, we have no choice because our business is in such a place. And it goes back to what you were saying originally, which is if that happens at the wrong time in your evolution as a company, it can sink your company, right? Because you might have a big enough engineering headache that you can't deal with quickly enough and affordably enough to also be in business at that same time. Well, you know, I mean, but you also make a good point in that, and the term I use for it is polishing the cannonball, right? You know I mean? Sure. It's like, you know, you can get into this polishing the cannonball thing and you want it to be perfect and you want it to be pretty. But the reality <laughs> is, is that, you know, you're going to shoot it out of a cannon. It's going to go through a, you know, a castle wall right. and get destroyed. Right. So there is no value in polishing that. Right. And so. So finding that balance. Yeah. Finding that line between the two is really hard, but it's like the biggest mistake I see is not, I mean, there is some polishing of the cannonball, but you on every single project, there's a, a huge pressure to get something out. And there's always someone who says, we'll go back. And we'll go it. back and fix it. And, and the reality is that's fine. And you can get something into production. Don't believe you're going to go back and fix it. Right. right. So whatever choices you make at that point, make sure they're ones that you want to live with because you're going to be living with them for a long time. I think that is a great first one. Can I give you my first one? Absolutely. Okay. So my first one is piece of advice. You're just going to have to trust me. Fintech infrastructure. Sell to banks. <laughs> and you laugh because you've been through this a few times. But, you know, I talked to a lot of fintech infrastructure founders, a lot of whom are new to financial services and haven't worked uh, in financial services a lot. And they have really good products and good ideas and things that they've built. Things that would benefit everyone in the financial services industry, maybe especially banks, because banks have old technology. Banks historically have relied on a very sort of people and process centric operating model where there's a lot of cost just built in where it's like, oh yeah, you know, we have Mary and John sitting down the hall. We'll just have them work on this thing. So a lot of bank software and processes are built around those assumptions and competing in a digital environment means having to get rid of a lot of those costs and become much more intelligent and automated and efficient in what they do. And the solutions that are getting built in fintech infrastructure, they're amazing and they can really help banks solve a lot of those problems. The trouble is that banks are not fun to sell to at all, right? And if you're, you know, 28, the last thing you want to do is spend the next 18 to 24 months of your life, which is a large chunk of your entire <laughs> life, selling software to one bank that has a dozen different stakeholders that are all engaged in this sort of interesting political warfare that you can't understand from the outside that theoretically have massive budgets and yet no one's budget is available for this particular project who require you to go through endless amounts of sales, demos, 
due diligence, RFPs, security reviews, audits, governance processes, procurement, and then getting all the way to the end of the process and realizing, you know, oh, now we have to work on configuring this for the client and what they need and getting that into production. So I get it, right? Like I completely, totally understand why fintech infrastructure companies tend to default to selling to fintech companies rather than to banks. Because if fintech companies are like the opposite, right? Like <laughs> the person I'm talking to is cool. They're young. They get what I'm trying to do. They want to move just as fast as we do. They're not totally hung up on like procurement or some process they have to follow. The security audit stuff that we have to do is really, really simple and straightforward. You know, we can just hammer it out over drinks tonight. Like <laughs> there's a very sort of quick and fun culture of selling to fintech companies. And it's the opposite with banks. However, a problem that I see come up over and over and over again is, and there might be a theme here in terms of defaulting to what's easy rather than doing <laughs> what the right thing to do is, but like banks are just such a better market for fintech infrastructure to sell into, right? And I think one thing that I've noticed about the world of fintech infrastructure recently is it was great when fintech companies had lots of money to spend, Right. But all of the like non-infrastructure fintech companies that I talked to today, they are all talking about, yep, we are kicking out this vendor and this vendor and this vendor. We are centralizing on this one. We're going to get huge costs. We're going to take this function and bring it in-house. We're not going to rely on a third party to do this. We're going to build the technology and get closer to the metal. All of the fintech companies are talking that way because they can't take the revenue that they're getting, which by the way, wasn't huge to begin with and dividing it up and feeding all of these mouths of all these fintech infrastructure companies. So we are, I think, right now going through a reckoning that was paid for by these low interest rates and all this money being dumped into fintech, where now fintech infrastructure companies are realizing, man, fintech clients, while they're easy to deal with on the front end, they are not great to deal with on the back end. And banks are exactly the opposite, right? Banks are horrible to deal with on the front end. But the reality is, and we found this at Zoot, once you've sold to banks, you're gold, right? Because especially if what you're providing is something that uh, generates revenue for them or that removes a huge amount of pain for them, they're never going to rip you out. Just never. They're never, ever going to do it. And so the same reason why it's difficult to get into banks means it's really hard for you to get ripped out of banks after that happens. Banks have a lot of money. They don't tend to think as much in terms of like having to squeeze down every little bit of that profit margin because their profit margins are significantly bigger than fintech companies. And banks are just fundamentally the winners in this market over and over again. Fintech companies go out of business. They get bought by banks. Banks survive. And so my number one piece of advice for fintech infrastructure is you're going to have to sell the banks eventually anyway. So just take your medicine Get good at it now because you're going to have to do it eventually. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that. I've spent so much time traveling around the country, sitting in boardrooms, talking to bankers. So a lot you probably of can't even remember what it was like. <laughs> to that yeah. uh, all of that's probably true, but I'll give you three reasons why I really believe in that one. Right. One is banks have a lot of money. <laughs> they know? do. They do. They do. I mean, we, we were talking about this earlier today, like, Banks just generate money, right? Yeah. It's a really good business, you know? And so they There's have a lot, a lot to spread around. They, they have a lot of money, right? Yeah. Two, banks, have, because they've been in the business for as long as they have, have huge volumes, right? Yeah, and not only does that generate a lot of money, but the other thing about it, if you sell your solution into them 
I mean, A, you should get paid transactionally, by the way, another piece of advice. But the other part about that is that whatever you provide, provides so much value because it's spread across this huge volume of clients, yeah. right? And so like, you know, you sell to a fintech and it's like, hey, gee, we had a great month. We, you know, booked a thousand loans, you know, <laughs> and that's awesome, right? right? But if you sold that to Cap One, it's, we sold a hundred thousand loans or we sold 500,000 loans, right? I mean, it's just, the impact is so huge, right? Yeah. And then the third one, and this is kind of the funny one, is bankers in general, and I'm not trying to offend any of my banker friends, and right now I'm working for a bank, so I fall into this category, but bankers aren't cool, right? Bankers want to be cool really bad. Yeah. Bankers think fintechs are cool, yeah. right? You know, And so banks really, I mean, even though they put you through the ringer to get in there, they really are interested in bringing in fintechs because fintechs are, are working with all the cool technology and they go back to, into the bank and they have to have a, a conversation with their IT department that's managing a COBOL system or whatever. Fintechs are cool. That gives you an advantage in selling to them because the banks want to be cool. The bankers want to be cool. Sure. And you, you know what you want to look for, and, and this is a very specific piece of advice I've learned over the years, is that you want to find that guy that works at the bank that's kind of cool, that's trying to make his career, and he's willing to do something a little bit outside of his comfort zone because he knows it could have this huge impact inside of the bank. Yeah. That's the guy to aim for. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I, I think kind of building on that last point for a second, the thing I found to be true with those particular people is they are inside the ballpark enough that they can work at the bank and make stuff happen, right? Because- you know, the truly crazy people get pushed out of banks. <laughs> There's a reason banks make so much money. Is they're, they're relatively conservative at their core. Right. But this person is also generally young enough. And you can kind of tell because like they're the one that like has a ponytail or like rides a motorcycle on <laughs> the weekend or whatever. They always have these like characteristics. And like they are willing to take a risk on a new provider because they think that might pay off huge for them. Right. And they have a little bit of risk tolerance. Whereas the whole, like, you don't get fired for picking IBM thing. Like, those are the people at the very top who make those decisions because, right. like, they have everything they need. Right. This is where they're going to retire. Like, they're not going to rock the boat. And so what you're looking for is the person right below that. And, you know, her characteristic is she wants to make a splash. She wants to build the next chapter of her career. She doesn't necessarily envision retiring at this bank, but she wants to take a little bit of a risk. And so making yourself that risk that they can take really drives that home. And you know, I'm sure we could get into a lot more detailed advice on how to navigate the process of selling <laughs> to banks. But the overall point I think stands, which is sell to banks. banks. Okay. All right. Your next one. Okay. So my next one, something that happens in, you know, the you probably won't believe. And, you know, it seems like common sense, but it doesn't happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is you have to listen to your customers. And you have to understand how, you know, your customer's business, how they make money, how they provide value to their customer and how that person, you know, sees value in that product. <laughs> the first point I want to make is that, you know, I've screwed this up over the years. I've screwed this up a number of times. And the thing that's finally come home to me is that good ideas come from the weirdest places, right? It comes from the janitor. It comes from the secretary. It comes from that really annoying client of yours that drives you crazy. You know, good ideas come from lots of different places and you can build the best stuff if you really, truly listen to them. 
And I'll tell you a quick story about this. When I worked at Zoot, I had um, I was running a product. It was pretty popular. You know, most people really liked it. I had one customer who was our biggest user. One of the people on our user group was a gentleman that was difficult to deal with, drove me crazy. And he was asking for a feature and he would ask for it at every one of these meetings and he would bring it up and it was always uncomfortable. And it was like, I finally went to my development team and said, okay, I can't face this guy again. Just put this in, right? And they did. And I have to say, became the number one feature of that product, right? Everybody loved it. All I had to do was just listen to him. And I fought him for 18 months, right? You know, I mean, what a moron, right? Really, truly listen to your customers. And the, the, the other thing I, I learned about this and the, the other point I would make is for a while, I had a group of usability people that reported up to me. And actually, when you work with usability people, one of the things they teach you is most people, when they hear customers talk, A, they can't shut up and just listen. And B, what they hear is what they want to hear, not what the customer is actually saying. And so it's not easy to be, you know, (laughs) my wife would probably tell you that I'm not all that, I'm better now, but I'm not all that great at it. Being, you know, an active participant in that, but really hearing what the other person is saying is not an easy thing to do. But if you do it well, you can build just fantastic products. Yeah, I mean, I think that one's really interesting because for me, again, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about before with your first one on you never go back and fix things like there's an art to distinguishing these things, right? Because there are people who are just a pain in the ass and they don't have good ideas. And then there are people who are a pain in the ass who have good ideas. And, you know, your sort of like lizard brain is just like, nope, this person's a pain in the ass. And you just bucket them into like one category But I think you're right, right? I mean, one of the things that's funny about really anything in like the world of fintech infrastructure is, and you made this point earlier, things need to be configurable because clients are going to use this stuff in different ways, right? And part of the challenge is that your product is only as successful as your user's ability to use it is. And I, I see this all the time in fintech. PFM is a good example of this, where... People build their product around a design pattern that makes sense to them personally. Right. Right. <laughs> and and it's really hard, right? Because like, I mean, using the Zoot example, like, okay, we're going to build a decisioning flow for a credit decisioning. And there's 12 different ways to build this. And none of them are wrong per se, right? Like some might be slightly more efficient. Some might be slightly less efficient. Some might, you know, be a little easier for least cost routing for pulling the right data in the right sequence or whatever. But fundamentally, there's a bunch of different ways you can design that. And to a degree, the way that a user is going to choose to design it is based on the way that their brain works and the way that it makes sense to them, right? And so I think I've heard you tell the story before about the the guy who was really sort of a pain in the ass. But like, I think one of the things that I take away from that is he just had a very different way of thinking about what the product did and how to use it than you did personally, or necessarily that other people on your team did. And it's, I would imagine it's hard to look at that and go, okay, is this just like a one-off thing that he really wants that wouldn't make sense? Or is this person actually representative of a large base of our potential users who would get way more utility out of our product if it worked this way, even though personally for us, this isn't how we would use it, right? And like, I guess the final capper on that point is, 
And again, this is really, really important, right? You sometimes think of yourself when you work in fintech infrastructure as a practitioner of the space that you're in, right? So when we worked at Zoot, we were created decisioning experts. Right. The reality, though, is we were more decisioning technology experts than we were credit experts, right? And it was easy, to, I think, to kind of fool ourselves. And your ego sometimes wants you to make this distinction that like, oh, no, I'm also a credit expert. Like I know all about credit and like how to underwrite and the right way to build attributes. But the reality is people at banks and other lenders know vastly more than I will ever know about how to build a good underwriting algorithm, right? Because like underwriting is core to what they understand. And while I might understand parts of the technology better, they understand the actual use case far better than I ever will. And so it seems like the other part of this challenge is a little bit of removing your ego from, I'm the one building the tool, but that doesn't mean I'm the expert in all the ways the tool can be used and having a little bit of humility there. Well, you know, the funny thing, the last cap on that is, you know, with that particular example, yeah, he was using it in a way, you know, like how he described it to me and I built the functionality. I could have never envisioned how that company, and I, I won't say which company it was, but a huge bank yep. used that, you know, and it's like, I was thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be this big and have this much logic. The way they ended up using that, it had a hundred, a thousand times more logic in there mm. than I would have ever imagined. Right. And it's like, yeah, if I had managed a thousand times more complexity than what I was thinking about, yes, I would do it exactly the way that he did it. But to your point, I didn't have that experience of lending at the largest bank, you know, one of the largest bank in the country. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know what the complexity of that could possibly be. Right. And it was, it was phenomenally complex. Right. Mm -hmm. And to your point, I think that the key to that whole thing is that humility, right? You know, it's like, I don't know all of this. I don't know everything. I can listen and I can build you a really good tool, but it's a partnership. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, all right. Are you ready for my next one? I am. Absolutely. All right. So this one's a little bit different, but I think it is a valuable piece of advice for folks who work in the infrastructure space, which is everything eventually becomes orchestration. Okay. And so here's what I mean by this. The fraud space is a good example of this. Everyone who builds in the fraud space, for the most part, there are a couple exceptions, but almost everyone who builds in the fraud space starts by coming up with a better mousetrap for a specific thing. And it's usually a product that has really good product market fit. It's usually tuned to a very hyper-specific problem that the industry is experiencing like right now at this moment. And it usually takes off like wildfire. Like you find product market fit immediately. People see it and they're like, oh my God, this is great. This is just what we need. And you go, I know, you know, this is like, it's brilliant. It's going to be awesome. You know, what's, <laughs> we're going to, we're just going to be we're going to be thrilled to have this. And you sell it into all of these places and it becomes a part of the stack that a bank or a fintech company uses. And then it starts to get a little long in the tooth. And it's not that it doesn't perform well, but fraud's a really good example of this. The environment changes. Fraudsters start attacking slightly different places. They adapt to what the solution is. The market just kind of moves on. And again, your solution is still providing value but it's not providing quite as much value as it was. And not only that, but like to your earlier point about fintech being just sort of cool, you're no longer the cool provider. Now you're just like, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, got to pay those assholes too. Uh, and uh, I think the problem with that 
challenges, then you start getting other people who are coming after your spot in the stack, right? And so now there's all of these new cool kids who are trying to sell into this bank and they're going, oh yeah, you use them? No, you don't need to use them. You need to use us. You need to put us up higher in the waterfall. And suddenly you are fighting for your place in this like stack that everyone has assembled going, no, 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 my little piece is better and you should pay for this and not that one. And it becomes like really difficult to maintain your position in the overall infrastructure stack that your client has assembled. And you end up in a lot of bake-offs and you end up having to compete on price and just have all these like icky conversations. And inevitably, inevitably, what ends up happening is you come up with this idea. And the idea is, so instead of just providing this one little piece, why don't we orchestrate the whole waterfall of how all these different pieces work together? So yeah, you can use this for this one piece. But the new thing we're coming out with is a platform to help our clients orchestrate how all these different things work. And you can see the appeal of this, right? Because instead of having to fight on a best of breed thing for every little piece, you can be like, hey, man, you know, use whatever you want. Use those guys, use that. It doesn't matter to us. You know, oh, you don't like our original product anymore? Swap it out. Just use our orchestration. And it's beautiful because you're incredibly sticky. You're used to orchestrate the entire waterfall of different processes and different products end to end. It's not really that complex to build, like relative to like your really cool best of breed product that you started with, like orchestration is fairly simple and you just get paid passively every time people use it. It's just to your point, it's transactional revenue. Like, yep, every time you make a decision, we just collect a nickel and it's just great for everybody. And you've essentially stepped out of this bake-off best of breed problem that you found yourself in. The caution I would offer to everyone when they're thinking about this in the world of infrastructure is everyone comes to this realization. And so while you think, oh man, we're going to do orchestration. This is going to be amazing. This is going to be so good for us. It goes back to what you said before. You have to think about what's valuable to your client. And what you have to know about your client is everyone is pitching them orchestration. First, they have a system they use for orchestration today. Now it might be old or whatever, but it works probably fairly well for them. So they already have something in place to do orchestration. And Every one of your competitors is coming to this idea at roughly the same time you are. So it's not one person pitching them orchestration. It's everyone pitching them orchestration. And I found this when we were at FICO, right? Like FICO had a very strong focus on selling a platform, which makes sense. That's what a lot of their business is oriented oriented around today. However, everyone wants to sell a platform. Everybody wants to provide a platform. And so I think the piece of advice I would have here is when you're building your product and you're thinking about how your product is going to evolve and you're building in the world of fintech infrastructure, I think you need to figure out a way to strike a balance between providing that best of breed, like, oh my God, my hair is on fire. I need a solution to this exact problem today, which is the value of those best of breed products that can get you in right away, but have a longer term strategy and maybe build some hooks into your product around this such that you are a natural choice to be the one that they standardize on. And that can be, hey, the more of this company we use, the smarter everything becomes. It can be the more of this company we use, the better integrated everything becomes. It can be the more of this company we use, the cheaper everything else becomes. You can figure out a lot of different ways to solve this. I, You know NeuroID, right? Sure. I was talking to them on a podcast a while ago. And one of the things they found was their product is the like behavioral yep. evaluation where they can look at 
your uh, user behavior and profile you and then determine like, is this like a real person or not? Like right? when you're on a website. Yeah. Like you're typing or you're like using your mouse, or whatever they can like use behavioral biometrics to kind of profile what you're doing and what, what risks you pose. What they found was it was really, really hard to stick in the stack because even though their solution was really cool, they were just constantly in bake-offs all the time and they'd get pushed down the waterfall, which meant their service was getting used less and someone else was being used more at the top of the waterfall. And what they found eventually, and they kind of landed on, which I think was a brilliant business strategy, was framing it not as a fraud tool, but as a customer evaluation tool. And so put us at the very top of the waterfall, the very, very top, and we will essentially act as like a set of eyes where in the same way that you might have a security guard at the door of your branch, if you're doing a branch bank and having them watch everyone and go, ooh, that person looks a little weird, like heads up, this might be a problem. They basically are pitching their solution as the digital equivalent to that security guard that sits there and kind of monitors the flow of traffic coming in. And it's not at all the way they originally envisioned their product, right? Because when they initially uh, initially envisioned their product, they were thinking, hey, our product is really good for detecting like first party fraud or like credit risk. Like we can spot things in our data that's really cool. But what they didn't understand originally was if you try to compete at that level of the stack, you're going to be in hand-to-hand combat for the rest of your life trying to keep that place in the stack. Whereas if you can reposition your product, the product doesn't really have to change, but if you can reposition it as, yeah, you know, you can use this downstream if you want, but our real value is here at helping you decide what to do and what paths to send different applications down. It's a totally different way of thinking about their product. So I think that's my advice is beware of the eventual allure of orchestration. Well, you know, but it's really interesting, right? Because we did this at Zoo, right? Yes. And and we we approached it in sort of a different way, right? And so what it becomes if you do it right, right? And, they, and, they, and this would, would be what I'd add to your advice is that like you come out with this best of breed thing, right? Okay. We came out with a decision engine, right? We got hooked into all of these banks, right? And uh, all of a sudden, all these banks are using it. So we were able to take that and then we were able to go out and because we were data agnostic and data agnostic is super important, right? You didn't we, care. We, I didn't care, right? So I went out and talked to all of the vendors that were in the market that were doing really cool stuff and said, hey, look, I'm already connected to all of these banks. Why don't you connect to me? Mm-hmm. And then you'll have access to all of these banks, right? And then the more of them that I got into the network, it's called the network effect, right? Yeah, yeah. The more I got them into the network, yeah. the more value the banks had because the banks were going, hey, well, not, not only can I get credit decisioning, but I can get you know, credit data, I can get fraud data, I can get all of these different things. Yeah. And then the more of those banks I got using that, the more of those other vendors out here that would connect to the system. Mm-hmm. And they would actually... The vendors would pay to connect to the system. Mm-hmm. The banks would pay to use the system. And it was like, we were sitting in the middle going, ching, 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 ching. Right. And every time a transaction rolled through, we were getting paid actually on both sides, right? right? So that network effect can be very powerful. Well, and I, I think the interesting point there, and maybe you could touch on a little bit of how to think about this from a product perspective, but like, I think the challenge is you want to be focused in building like a great product. You want to build a great decision yeah. engine, right? And so... There is a certain point when you're building your company and your product where you don't want to be playing three-dimensional chess. You just want to be focused on like doing what you're doing, like play this game of checkers and play it really well. But there is a point in time, and I think it happens earlier maybe than you think, where you have to kind of start thinking about three-dimensional chess, right? Because to your point about the decision engine and then hooking in the data, like if you had realized that value of the data 
five years later, that opportunity would have kind of been gone, right? And so there's like a window of time. And I'm curious, like, how you sort of recognize that window of time where we have to go from being really good at this one thing that's getting us just tons of clients and is getting lots of traction. And then we have to kind of pull back a little bit and realize that even though we could just press the pedal to the metal and go even faster and like, hey, all of these clients are asking for these things, let's just focus on making the best decisioning engine possible and just really accelerating our roadmap here. You have to widen the aperture and think about starting to play that multiple level game of chess because at a certain point, that becomes the way that you avoid someone coming behind you and just kicking you out of all of these great places that you've done. Right. You know, I mean, and I think from an infrastructure perspective, I mean, I think the thing you need to do is as you're out selling to your clients, again, going back to the earlier point, if you're listening to them about what their challenges are, right? You know, yeah. like one of the things that we found at Zoo was the challenge was, hey, there's all these new, and, and it's still a challenge today in the market, actually. There's all these great vendors out there, but my infrastructure takes me a year to bring them in, right? You right. know, and the cost of it is so high that the marginal cost of bringing somebody in, it takes me five years to pay that back. And it takes a year. And within a year, there's somebody else out in the market that I really would prefer to have. So you have to be able to do it very quickly. And so the idea is if you listen to them and understand what their challenges are, build those features into your orchestration, build those hooks, right? Then go out and start having conversations with those vendors and saying, hey, I'm, I'm talking to you know XYZ Bank and they mentioned that they really have a problem with fraud. And instead of you selling against me and sure, my decision engine can decision on fraud too, but you already have this model. And they, they actually mentioned your name and they're like, oh my God, they did? Yeah, well, if you were hooked into me, then it, it would be a snap. They could just try out that data anytime you want to, right? And it's really listening to the customer and, and letting them kind of guide you on that. Okay, you touched on one other point that I want to hit on real fast there, which is going to other companies in the space and figuring out how you can work together. Because the other thing I see a lot in fintech infrastructure is, well, we can't work with them. They're a competitor of ours. Yeah. <laughs> And maybe this is its own whole bucket of advice, but I think it really relates to this sort of best of breed versus orchestration challenge is you want to make the transition to playing more of an orchestration role because it's a better business to be in. That will necessitate you playing really nicely with a large percentage of the ecosystem in a way that will not at all feel natural when you first start doing well, it. Well, and it's what you said earlier, right? Got to be humble. You have to be humble, right? You, you know, like we're like, not as good at this as someone else, right? Right, or maybe we think we are, but our customers don't. You well, know? right, and so maybe it's a marketing failure. Maybe it's whatever. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. If if the customer wants this other product, yeah, make it available to them. Yeah, right. And, and the reality is, if they're using that other product, they're still your customer, and you can still talk to them and say, "Hey, by the way, do you know that we do this?" And realize that the other people that you bring in that partner with you don't set up firm things and say, oh, you must not do this and you can't talk about this or whatever. The reality is, is that everybody should win because they're the best. Right. Right. And the and, more value collectively you're delivering to clients, the better it is for everybody. Right. And if you can create these seven things and you're the best at doing all seven of those. Yeah. Great. If you can't do any of those things except orchestration, then take all the stuff from everybody else and still make money, right? It's something you say all the time, Alex, which is optionality, right? Yeah, you, know? you want to have and optionality. It, yeah, you want to have optionality. And so it's like you want to provide to them a suite of capabilities 
and they may overlap, right? And that's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's like, you know, the other, thing, the other thing we were talking about earlier is easy is not always better, <laughs> right? Well, and it's really easy and feels comfortable to build a walled garden around what you do. Don't do that, right? You got to be open. Well, and I, I think that that touches on one last point that I wanted to just sort of talk a little bit about, which is I know you've spent a lot of your career sort of swimming between different groups inside the companies that you work with, right? And in fact, at FICO, your job was specifically to not run any one individual product area, but to sort of bounce between all the different product areas and try to get them to integrate and work with each other, right? It seems to me like one of the biggest challenges to building like fintech infrastructure that really is just great and solves just a massive amount of problems for clients and creates a lot of value is there is this very sort of human instinct to draw very clear lines around what we're doing. Like we do this, we don't do that. We're bringing in this partner, but here are the rules of engagement and you have to do this and you're not allowed to do that. This is this group's decision. They're going to make this decision for the product. That's not your decision to make over here. And obviously there is a certain amount of sort of organizational structure that you need to have in order to have a successful company. But I guess one experience I've had both at bigger companies and smaller companies is it's strange how quickly people, even at small companies, will draw lines around what they do because it's there's something very naturally comforting to human beings of having like certainty around like, I know this is black, this is white, this is what we're going to do. Can you talk a little bit about like what advice you would give for breaking down those silos? Because I don't think silos is like a problem exclusive to JP Morgan Chase. I think even in the world of like fintech infrastructure and relatively like small startup companies that I talk to in the world of fintech infrastructure, these silos and these sort of self-imposed rules take place a lot faster than people think and they inhibit some of this value creation. You know, the easiest way that I know for everybody to be able to do a really good job of this, right? And it's not easy, right? Is get out of yourself, put yourself in your customer's position Mm -hmm. and say, what would provide me the most value? You know, because if you think about a bank, JP Morgan Chase is a great example, right? Like me going in and, and applying for a mortgage loan and in the same branch, I can't get an auto loan or I can't do whatever. And they're like, oh, you gotta go across the street or you gotta go onto this website or whatever. It's stupid, right? You know, I mean, from a customer's perspective, you would never build a bank that way, right? You would never build a bank that way. But from a bank's perspective, it's like, yep, this is my little thing that I do. And, you know, don't you touch that and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like one of the things we used to work with banks a lot on is a multi-product approach, right? Well, the problem with the multi-product approach is that, sure, this guy came in to buy a car. Could I sell them a home equity line that they use to pay to buy a car? Sure, I could do that, right? You know, or a personal loan to buy a car or whatever. And so everybody is really protective, but you got to think about it from the customer's perspective. Like I'm out shopping for a car. What's the easiest way for me to get one? I'm out buying a swimming pool. What's the easiest way for me to be able to get one? You want it to be the lowest friction thing that you possibly can. So get out of your space, get out of your company, Go to the customer that you want to sell to, understand who they are, understand what motivates them, understand what provides value to them, and then look at your company from the outside and go, does that make any sense that we would have lines like that? Mm-hmm. Hell no. Doesn't make any sense at all, right? You know, And there may be places where it does make sense, right? Where a client would go, 
I would never do those two things together, right? Okay, that's fine. You know, like, you know, I, I'm not going to buy uh, scuba diving equipment from you and get a car loan. Probably not, right? Those don't match. Sure. But most things from a customer's perspective make it easy and valuable from them. Look at it from their perspective. Yeah. No, I think that's a good piece of advice. It's why actually I think there are a lot more in the world of fintech infrastructure, like kind of chief customer roles yeah. kind of popping up or like customer advocacy roles. And it's kind of sounds like sort of a soft squishy job title. But I think like the thinking behind those roles is we have so many people who specialize in drawing really sharp boxes around all the different parts of what we're doing and making them efficient. And again, like there's a reason companies have silos, like it's efficient, there's accountability, things can move fast. Like I get why that happens, but you almost have to have this sort of countervailing force inside your company going, you know, my job is to not care about any of these things and to just come in from the customer's perspective and go, this is stupid, this is stupid, this is stupid. We need to solve these problems and being a little bit okay, gently bruising people's feelings around that. Right? Well, you know, I, I'll give you a great example. I'll throw some of my former employees and employers under the bus a little bit. But when you and I worked at FICO, part of that job was exactly what you described. But it was always interesting to me that they sold software they sold consulting, and they sold analytics. And the reality is none of those things were ever pulled together, right? That was what I did, right, when I worked there. And it's like, you know. So weird from the customer's perspective. For, for perspective, yeah. But I mean, it's like, but you're world-class analytics, and you have a decision engine, but you don't put those together. And it's like a pain in the ass. There's no common contract. There's no nothing mm -hmm. to do that. And oh, by the way, you have an advisor group that, that could actually tell me how to do that, but that's another contract I have to sign. What in the hell? You know, I mean, that's yeah. it's nuts, right? That that and was like the simplest solution is like, can we have one contract? For right. It? Like, we're not even saying like all these things need to be tightly integrated or natively like embeddable within each other. Like, let's just make not make the client sign three contracts. <laughs> but it's weird, and not just at large companies, but at small companies, you'll see these things that crop up where you're like, wait, why are we doing this? Why, yeah, why, why would we possibly do that? Okay, well, I think that's a very good piece of advice. Look at it from the customer's perspective. We'll consider that the fifth and final piece of advice. This was fun. Thank it was. You. Thank you for coming on. It was enjoyable. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll do this again. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you enjoyed this, please let us know. And hopefully, if you're listening to this around the holidays, you have a great holiday as well. Yep. Have great holidays. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.